everybody, welcome to the third episode in our history series. This time I'm joined again by John from Defense Bulletin, and today we are going to be doing the second part in our look at Great Britain in the lead up to the First World War. Of course, we did uh, pre-war Germany in our first episode, and second episode was obviously the first part of looking at Britain. So second part right now, we will wrap that up. And then I think we're going to move on to probably the Ottoman Empire after this. So be on the lookout for that. But before we get started here, check out the Lethal Minds Journal, a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art and culture. Take a look at the journal's bulletin from the Borderlands, a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication for multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more also please consider supporting us on patreon patreon.com slash analyze educate ko-fi ko-fi.com slash analyze educate or substack analyze educate.substack.com all those links can be found in the show notes below. You guys get some perks if you support us there. And of course, we appreciate all the support that you guys throw our way. But with that being said, I think we could head into the episode. Hey, everybody, I'm here again with John. This is the second part in our uh, episode on Great Britain, looking at them before the first world war how's it going man it's going good man good to be here yeah so this uh this episode should be the last one we do for great britain we should be able to wrap it up here now i know last episode we were going to start off with the crimean war i'm actually not going to do that i'm going to start off with something first and i i'm going to do this because i feel like it gives um some good context as to what relations were like between Russia, the Russian Empire, and the British Empire at the time, right? So we're talking about the Great Game, which was this rivalry between those two empires, Russia and Britain, over influence in Central and South Asia during the 19th century. Now, the first mention of the Great Game was in 1840 between two British officers. That's how it gets the name. Both empires saw their missions were to control the territories and countries in South and Central Asia. And they saw those as um, civilizing campaigns, right? Which is like a common, uh, you know, like rhetoric for like these colonial uh, endeavors, whatever. I mean, you see yeah. the same thing in like the um, Manifest Destiny here in the US, yeah, exactly. right? You're, you're civilizing the local populace through colonization, right? So when the great game is really discussed today, uh, it's mostly focused on Afghanistan. And its surrounding areas, because that's where we saw a lot of the um, action as far as, you know, conflicts and diplomacy goes. So Britain sought to conquer what was the emirate of Afghanistan at the time, which then encompassed parts of modern day Afghanistan, also Pakistan and Tajikistan. And it was filled with various tribal ethnic groups, kind of how Afghanistan still is today. Afghanistan was either to be a new imperial possession for Britain or it was at least going to be a buffer between British India or uh, the Raj India, I think they call it. No, sorry, British Raj. British Raj. Yeah, British Raj. What they also yeah. call it. Um, and Russian-controlled Central Asia. Multiple wars were fought during this time, including the Anglo-Sikh Wars in uh, Punjab and Kashmir, which would get absorbed into India. 
um, and also the two Anglo-Afghan wars. The British initially had success in the first Anglo-Afghan war. This is from 1839 to 1842, uh, but they did fail to maintain stability and they eventually withdrew. The exiled leader of Afghanistan, Dost Mohammad Khan, returned to rule the emirate. The second war takes place from 1878 to 1880, and by this time, the guy in power is Sher Amir Khan, and he sought to keep a neutral stance between British and Russian influence. Now, Russia at this time is still continuing to make more and more movements into Central Asia. That makes Britain paranoid, and they see Amir Khan's reluctance to choose a side as effectively siding with the Russians, right? The British invade, uh, the invasion of Afghanistan sees, Afghanistan gets its ass kicked pretty much. Um, they lose much of Southern and their Eastern territories to the British Raj, India, in exchange for British protection, right? So they effectively become a protectorate. This was established in the Treaty of Gandamark, sorry, Gan Gandamak, Gandamak, Gandamark, one of the two. Yeah, get him back. The but, border with the seized territories and the rest of Afghanistan was finalized in 1893, known as the Durand Line, which actually still serves as the modern day border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Funny enough, that border is still contested uh, by some in Afghanistan today. They claim that part of what is now Pakistan is theirs, rightfully. Yeah, yeah. And I do think that, and so where, where we obviously see this as like the prelude, I think this is obviously why you wanted to. Um, hit the great game before the Crimean War because it is essentially the prelude to the Crimean War, right? Um yeah. Russian expansion. And we we mentioned this in the um in the pre-war um Germany video as well. Um and we've probably mentioned this in other pods that we've talked about. But Russian expansion has historically been something that the great powers in um and you'll see this when we cover next right now, um the Crimean War is something that essentially the Russians they expand, expand, expand. Um and uh, sometimes even at the, uh, generally not at the behest of the other great powers, sometimes even with their help. Um, but what we often see is when they expand too, kind of too much into the sphere of influence of other great power nations, um, obviously they then band together, right? We kind of saw this um, and they kind of smack them down. We've seen this in past wars um, uh, in the past as well. Um, I think a good example would obviously be right uh, well, obviously the Crimean War, right? But we saw how prior to that, they were all allied with Russia to defeat, right? A common enemy, Napoleon. Like obviously Russia made certain, um, not only geopolitical, but territorial gains from defeating Napoleon, right? Um, obviously po the, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth is no more, things like that. Uh, that we just, it may not be the, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, but just the Polish, that's no more, right? Russia now has hegemony over that region. And so now Russia, now once they begin to capitalize off these gains, um, they begin to get more aggressive and expansionist, and then the great powers tend to band together and bat them down. Um, yeah, and one, one then, thing to note about yeah. Russia is, I mean, at this time, Russia is a European empire, right, just like the rest, but they're, um, Russia's traditionally been expansionist because they've traditionally been very paranoid about um, their neighbors, right? Russia has been invaded many times, and for that reason, they really like going on the offense, right? If a hey, best yeah. best defense is a good <laughs> offense, right? We better we might as well invade these guys before they could invade us. That's kind of historically been their mentality, right? We could obviously see that coming into play in Ukraine right now. You know, a, yeah, exactly. A lot of people want to argue about the causes of Ukraine and stuff like that. 
Um, but I, I do think it is hard to argue against the fact that Russia is paranoid about the expansion of NATO, especially when it comes to Ukraine, which is right on their border, which they share a history with, which some of what is now Ukraine today used to be part of Russia, right? Their history exactly. is very intertwined. I don't think you can make an argument against the fact that Russia is at least a fair bit paranoid about the expansion of NATO into Ukraine right along their border. If you look at Russia historically, as I was saying, they're expansionist because they're paranoid. They think they're going to get exactly. invaded. This is something yeah. that continues to this day. I mean, all the way since Peter the Great, right, when he was fighting the Swedish for the same reasons, right? We, we saw them doing things like this. Um, I think that's Peter the Great really cemented that as like Russian uh, um, foreign policy, as foreign policy strategy, right? You know, we'll get rid of you before you can try and get rid of me. Um, uh, obviously, yeah, I mean, that's when you when you look at history, especially European history, I mean, that's really not that off the wall or just, world, really not, just yeah. world history in general, not even just European history, but, you know, human history looking at these nations these um civilizations i mean that's that's pretty common right people yeah people get paranoid you know and they they want to act right it's a it's a preemptive strike if you want to call it that perfect example not to get into the to, to the current um you know politics of what's going on in israel but if you saw israel you know preemptively struck um the coalition that was formed to get the arab coalition formed against them when they realized that they you know how because they why because they felt threatened um or there's the argument to be made that Israel acts the way it does now um, um, towards its neighbors due to that same type of paranoia that we're talking about with Russia. Yeah. Um, and so obviously all this leads up to the Crimean War, um, where we see that, you know, the allies, um, more so the Western nations, um, noticeably absent, obviously, is Germany. We'll get into that with um, with the Moroccan crisis and Germany's involvement, um, trying to kind of get out there a on the geopolitical stage. But we now see the, the nations banding together with the Crimean War. Yeah, and so I'm I'm glad you brought up the fact that um, you know, like we began with, this is kind of a, a prelude to the great game. I'm sorry, the great game is kind of a prelude to the Crimean War. At right. the same time, though, it's it's happening right smack in the middle of the Crimean War, right? Yeah. Or the the great game. Sorry. Um, I mean, the great game goes really all the way up until the early years of the 20th century, right? It's the mm -hmm. Crimean War is right smack in the middle of that, even though it's not going on in South and Central Asia, it's still something to keep note, right? A lot of uh, Britain's motivations in this war, right? Wanting to expand it and keep it going. I mean, you got to keep the great game in mind, right? Russia is their adversary and they want them weak. Yeah, and, and I do think it's really great that you mentioned that it didn't just end at the Crimean War, because if you look at it, honestly, the great, the great game is still going today. Um, I think that, uh, or even you could say, because uh, if you look at how Great Britain's interests were kind of just uh, given, uh, the U.S. kind of adopted them, right? I think that's why the transition of power as the, like the world, the world leader of the world leader uh, in the geopolitical sphere was, was so essentially what you could call peaceful between the United States and Great Britain was because we had the same values, right? Uh, that's why people say um, yeah, it's such a bad thing for trying to be the world leader now because it does not hold democratic values. They hold expansionist, aggressive um authoritarian values right and so we saw the great game uh kind of just be continued with the united states and uh uh right we look at the the soviet the, the soviet afghanistan war right and uh we were supporting the uh the mujahideen against them right and it's it's just a continuation of it and vice versa now uh in, in GWAT, right doing the GWAT. um I, I do think though that 
Russia is kind of always going to, I mean, short, short of like a major, major, major flip, like uh, switch in the geopolitical dynamic um, in, uh, in the Central Asia, I, I, Russia, it's always the great game, essentially, if you call it the great game, like the eternal great game is always going to be whoever the leading power in the region or the world is versus Russia, right? Because I don't see Russia going anywhere anytime soon. I know there's a lot of people who'd like to say, yo, the one Ukraine is going to be the demise of Russia. But it, I, I do think Russia is always going to be fighting for influence against whoever, right? Let's say it's China, right? Um, 20 plus, I mean, I hope not. That would mean something happened really bad in the United States, but um, let's say somehow China becomes a preeminent power in the world. Uh, who knows? Maybe we'll see China fighting a proxy war against Russia in Afghanistan or something. And Afghanistan always seems to be this point, right? You mentioned in, uh, or you mentioned uh, a couple minutes ago that Afghanistan was seen as was as a buffer state between the British Empire's borders and 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 the Russian uh, protect some Russian protectorate's borders, right? And it, you can say the same thing about other countries. Um, obviously, India. Um, it's a different dynamic now, obviously, between India and Pakistan. Now, Pakistan did not exist then. But we, we see Afghanistan commonly uses this kind of buffer state between all these different powers in the region. Um, obviously, yeah. they, they have lots of minerals and there's other you know coal deposits and things like that. But um, I, I, it, it is largely seen as a buffer state. But I do think it's a good time to get into the uh, Crimean War now. Um, so... Uh, so, so the war, uh, the Crimean War was mainly fought in the Baltic Sea. Um, and then also, uh, obviously, there's the Crimean campaign, right? Uh, the siege of Sevastopol being the kind of preeminent battle there um, along the Danube River and in the northern Pacific. Um, while the land engagements are mostly discussed, the naval engagements were the most decisive. Um, I do think there is an argument, though, that the siege of Sebastop Sevastopol largely sapped the Russian manpower reserves. And I think that's, that largely contributes, as well as the British, right, um, uh, some British, um, I'm losing the term, uh, blockades. Yeah, on, I would uh, shipping. Obviously, you know, we'll talk about this here in a couple minutes, but I, I would say that the siege of Sevastopol, um, was not the cause of, you know, the end of the war. What what made Russia lose? But I would say it's exacerbated some of the issues that they were having. Um, and definitely, kind of brought them to the forefront of of the minds of. The Russian elite. Now, now, just a question, right? So this war originally began as a um, kind of a, a, a feud between Russia and the Ottoman Empire, right? And so, uh, so it's it's actually it's actually more interesting that than that. So you're not wrong. Um, it was really about holy sites in yeah. uh, you know what is now like Israel and Palestine stuff like that. Because, you know, at this point, it was under the control of the Ottoman Empire. So Russia, as, you know, the main Orthodox country, right, the main Orthodox power, they want to control over these Christian holy sites, whereas France, a Catholic country, they want to control as well. And, you know, both countries kind of try to vie for this control with the Ottomans, right? Like, hey, no, we should have this control. No, we should have it. And the Ottomans eventually sided with the French. Uh, the Russians yeah. didn't care for that too much. So that's well, that's really how you get the war started. And I think the interesting thing is, if, if, if I remember correctly, the, the Crimean War is also referred to as the last crusade sometimes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Largely because of that, that reason, right? Um, and, and we were talking about, um, we've talked about in past, past podcasts, right, how wars um, 
are declared, you know, generally uh, for saying, oh, my ethnic population lives in your country um, and the, or, or religious or for religious reasons. Obviously, the Crusades come to mind, you know, people screaming days bald and all this crazy stuff. But um, it, we, we see wars declared for, for many of the same reasons. And this is kind of one of them. Um, but it, it's arguably one of the last great power wars that I would say that kind of this is the main reasoning, and it, it, it's you it, because then after that we start to see, and we talked about this in the pre-war Germany episode, right? How how we can now declare war now doing due to the expansion of rights, right, of the rights domestically within countries uh, and civil liberties, we can now say, hey, you know, this affects you, right? You know, them doing this affects you. Let's go fight them instead of like saying, oh, like our our God is different from theirs or our holy sites, blah, 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 right? And, and so yeah, I think the reason becomes different. I do, I do kind of clock this in my own personal opinion. It's kind of one of the last wars and we're fighting major wars over this reason, right? Right. Large scale conventional wars over um, holy sites, you know, <laughs> um, a lot of people thought that was left in you know, the 11 and 1400s, but no. Uh, so, but, um, so uh, Tsar Nicholas of Russia, Tsar Nicholas the first of Russia, he's the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, right? He's also the head of state as well. Um, he saw himself as the defender of all Orthodox, like you mentioned, uh, and Christians and the heir to the uh, uh, the Eastern Roman Empire or Byzantium. But uh, and so, right, obviously, it's now called Istanbul. Um, the Constantinople is now called Istanbul, but Byzantium was the actually the name before Constantinople. Um, obviously, that's where the Byzantine Empire gets its name from. Uh, he sought to defeat the uh, Ottoman Empire and partition it because the Ottomans controlled Palestine at the time. I think do think a big thing to mention here, and we'll get into this in detail in the uh, pre-war Ottoman Empire uh, episode, which will, which is largely plays into the Crimean War. There's an argument to be made that we could even do the Crimean War in the Ottoman one too, because there's a lot of aspects of the decline of the Ottoman Empire, right? It was known as the sick man or the poor man of, not sick, poor man, the sick man of Europe at the time. Yeah. So the Ottoman Empire since, uh, and I, I'm losing the specific wars, but in the late 1600s, early 1700s, they fought a couple of wars against Austria-Hungary. Austria-Hungary, obviously, you know, the siege of Vienna comes to mind. That's kind of the peak of their existence. And ever since then, they were declining. Um, uh, their borders were kind of shrinking. Um, and so uh, arguably, this is Russia, this war is Russia taking advantage of that, right? Um, so we sought to defeat them and partition uh these uh territories uh france another important player uh, especially um they're a powerful catholic country um the czar uh the czar knew that france wouldn't uh necessarily care from taking control of the holy sites of palestine uh if if the ottoman empire would have collapsed um he wasn't worried about the french uh because he assumed britain would back his claims um now this this also comes to play the uh assumption of uh vice versa, the assumption of Russia backing someone else's claims. We'll see Germany kind of making this wrong assumption during the Moroccan crisis a little later on when we cover that. Um, he uh, And the only reason he assumed this is because France historically was their enemy. So he had a good reason to assume this. In 1844, he signed a secret agreement with Britain, agreeing on a partition, partition of the Ottoman Empire, um, once again, if it would fall. He was once again wrong, as Great Britain increasingly saw Russia as a dangerous power, and both countries were engaged engage in what we just mentioned before, the great game in Asia. And this is this plays into what I was talking about before, how we may have signed a pact with you, but you're now kind of getting outside of the bounds of what I think you should be able to do um, in, in, the, in, the, in, in the region, whatever region that we're playing in, right? Um, so Britain was also afraid that Russia would move on India as well. Now, obviously, India is like the Great Britain's crown jewel. 
right? So it, as soon as, and this kind of goes back again to what I was talking about before, as soon as Russia begins to um, enter into regions that has uh, British or whatever uh, great power nations influence, then they kind of smack them down. And so this is why. Um, uh, so uh, he was, they were afraid that Russia would move on India with uh, once the Ottoman collapse and uh, making it easier for Russia to do so and also upsetting the balance of power in the post-Napoleonic world, which is a very, very, very fragile balance. It's like barely there. Um, yeah. Great power war is just waiting to happen, essentially. Um, the Russian Navy, uh, the uh, Britain, uh, they're, they've been propping up the Ottoman Empire for exactly this reason, to kind of maintain said balance. The Russian Navy in the Black Sea with Crimea um, uh, as a major base of operations was the biggest concern as they friend Istanbul, um, or some may know as Constantinople. Um, Sevastopol is still the major, um, uh, actually, as of very, very recently, not anymore, but up until very, very recently, was still the major hub for Russian naval, um, for the Russian naval presence in the Black Sea. Um, it's now, for uh, for reasons uh, going uh, pertaining to the Russo-Ukrainian war, they had to relocate a large amount of the Black Sea fleet. Um, so this brought brings back France into the uh, brings France back into the picture. There are a series of invocations of multiple treaties by France and Russia regarding control of Palestine's Christian holy sites, um, which led to France deploying the warship Charlemagne to the Black Sea. Um, because the Ottomans sided with France, claims to these sites, Russia invaded the Ottoman-controlled land along the Danube River in July 1853. Um, once again, at this time, uh, the Tsar isn't too worried about European powers intervening because going back to before, he thought Britain was on his side. Once again, this was a wrong assumption. Now, Britain didn't uh, initially intervene. Um, there were two peace proposals brought up by the British, French, and Austrians, um, and the Prussians as well, but they were shot down by the Ottomans in the first case, and Russia in the second. So one thing I do want to interject with here, though, well, no, saying myself, but uh, is notice we're talking about Prussia. At this time, there is no German. So this is largely why. And so by the time we get to the Moroccan crisis, all the things that we had talked about in the um, pre-war Germany episode had happened. And so now Germany, there's a German nation. And so you'll kind of see why Germany's acting the way it does. Uh, it gives some context to why Germany was acting the way it does during the Moroccan crisis. Um, so these two peace proposals um, from the French, Austrians, and the Prussians, and the British, uh, they were shot down by the Ottomans. Um, and uh, and then in the second time, uh, the Russia shot them down. So in late November 1853, the Russian Navy discovered um, uh, the Ottoman fleet of 11 ships docked in the Black Sea port of city of Sinop, and they attacked the fleet and they, they decimated them. Uh, with this victory, Russia had naval superiority in the Black Sea. Uh, this is something that Britain was fearful of. Um, so the Crimean War was the first one war to use explosive shelled naval guns. Uh, this is... Um, this is basically the first war where, you know, they weren't firing with like hard balls and stuff like that. Um, yeah, which uh, surprised the Ottomans. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't that remember the, the name of the Ottoman uh, leader that was there. Uh, some some guy with, you know, the title of Pasha. Uh, but yeah, he was he was fairly surprised to see these. Oh, uh, he was like the vizier, the vizier, the vizier. I always mispronounce that. Uh, but the, I think, yeah, Pasha was kind of like the second the second most powerful guy in the. Well, Pasha was a, a title that was given to multiple people, but it was like yeah. a very powerful title, right? Like you, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's the the Moroccans did something similar. They had the the, the viziers, um, 
uh, and we'll get into that. I'll get into that a little later, though, how like they had uh, the vizier largely. And we see this in the Ottoman Empire a lot, too. Uh, sometimes the vizier or the pasha had more control than the actual sultan did, uh, uh, which is probably played a role in the Ottomans collapse as well. Um, so uh, the British and French, they use this engagement to drum up, drum up public support for the war against the Russian Empire. Um, we talked about uh, the revolution of media in the UK. And so this is play like the information war, essentially. Um, the, the free press in Britain was able to stir up anger against the Russians by referring to the Battle of Sinop as a massacre, even though there's no evidence the Russian forces committed any atrocities. Um, the press had already been spreading conspiracy theories about Russian plans to dominate the world. So they didn't have to work too hard. And so a lot of people think that yellow journalism was like, oh, this is an American thing. This was going on everywhere, right? Yeah, it was particularly in... notorious in Great Britain. Yeah, yeah, like uh, yeah thought, absolutely notorious. Yeah, I mean, they thought the, the newspaper moguls were bad here. It was, I mean, the, the bold faced lying that the British newspapers and the British media used to uh, engage in was, was, I mean, it's, it's, it, it makes the, uh, how we um, justified the um, the uh, Spanish American War like nothing, I mean, yeah. like the like the USS Maine explosion. It makes that and the way they twisted that it makes it look like nothing. I mean, this is boldface lying. Um, yeah, and so uh, you know, at, at the same time, um, you know, the British press is telling people that while well, the Russians want to dominate the world again, you got to keep this in your mind. At this point in time, the Great Game is ongoing. Yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. So yeah. And and the funny thing is, like, they're saying the Russians want to dominate the world as they literally dominate the world. Right? <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, you're keen to make the other guy look like, you know, you kind of try and steer um steer people's eyes away from, you know, exactly what you're doing, right? which is just gaining a hegemony over more territories and more nations. But obviously, you know, it it's good business, right? <laughs> you just yeah. can't deny that. Um, so, uh the Russia ignored their ultimatum right to withdraw from Ottoman-controlled uh, Danubian principalities, um, and Great Britain and France declared war on Russia on March 28, 1854. So now the Crimean War is in full effect. Um, so the first engagement between the British and French, uh, British French, and then the Russians, was in the Baltic Sea with a series of naval clashes. Uh, the former attacking attacked their Russian coastal ports and blockaded trade in the Gulf of Finland. Um, the the and we may get back to this a little later, but the the one of the large reasons for Russia losing, other than obviously the Battle of Sevastopol, the Siege of Sevastopol as well, was the was the uh, the Royal Navy's um uh not embargo but blockade of, of Russian imports and exports. Uh, they played a huge part in that. They uh, the blockade was so extensive, in fact, that it actually <laughs> it actually was hurting their operational ability to do other things as well. That the that British, that is, because they they put so much resources into it. Um, and uh, there's the argument to be made that if it they wouldn't have been able to keep it up for much longer. So you know, Russia capitulating when it did kind of helped them out. Yeah, I mean the the Baltic campaign is is probably the least remembered uh, theater of the Crimean War, um, but it it essentially won the war for the British and the French with the blockade of Russian trade, as you were saying. You know, um, British and French actions in this area like can they cannot be um understated right in in terms of their effectiveness that they had you know saint petersburg which was the russian capital at this point was under serious threat and that forced russia to keep a large force there as well which meant they could not be sent south to fight in crimea right they're kind of tying down a force which is something that could not be uh understated as well 
Um, you know, this campaign really isn't remembered in part because the British and the French took relatively few casualties. Uh, and the British press actually accused naval commanders of cowardice for not attacking St. Petersburg. But but again, it, it really is the theater that that won the war. And like we were saying a couple minutes ago, you know, that hey, the siege of Sevastopol was like the last, you know, major engagement of the war. Um, in my opinion, all the siege of Sevastopol did was exasperate some of these issues that were caused by the Baltic campaign. Yeah, right on. Um, lost my. Yeah, so uh, so the Tsar he uh, so he ordered uh withdrawal from uh. Oh, let me go back. Um, so now we're back in the Black Sea, away from the Baltic uh theater of war. Um, in the Black Sea, before the British and French could deploy, French uh, could deploy their armies. Russia tried to push for Constantinople. Now this may have been kind of way out of their bounds. But um, in May 1854, they came across and laid siege to the Ottoman fort at uh, Silistria, Silistria in uh, modern-day, well, what then was Bulgaria as well. Uh, the 15,000-strong uh, force of mostly Egyptian Albanians were effectively led by a small number of British military advisors, and they had to defend against 90,000 Russians. The Tsar ordered a withdrawal from Silistria and canceled the uh, push on Constantinople in late June, after 70K British and French troops landed in Varna. Um, this is east east of Silistria. And the Austrians entered into alliance with the Ottomans as well. Um, the Austrians massed 250,000 forces on the border of the Danubian principalities and threatened Russia with an assault if they did not leave the area. And this kind of also goes into what you were talking about before, how um, allied actions in other regions um, hampered their... Uh, the uh, Russians' ability to kind of commit forces decisively in one spot. Um, and and it, it's, it's just kind of these tactics of kind of splitting up the Russian force, because I think if Russians were able to concentrate their forces in one area um, for, for a good period of time, the, the war could have turned out very differently. Um, we can get into also the quality of the forces as well, because if you, we consistently see in this war, the allies with the deficit of forces fighting off or defeating Russian forces. Uh, so that, that's another aspect of it as well. Um, so British uh, forces um, uh, were in Varna to stage for an upcoming assault on Sevastopol, Crimea, um, and they faced some less than ideal con uh, conditions, including cholera, camp fever, and other illnesses and diseases, which killed 10,000 soldiers before they remained to the fight. It, this it continues the, uh, the trend in the 1800s and prior of the second most um, uh, the second most thing that attracts forces for a large, but only until recently has been disease, um, right? I think uh, in the movie, the, the, the kid, there's a movie called The King about King Henry V, and they're talking about, and I think it's best said in this movie, he says, men in these numbers sent here for this time will only um, will, will only cause uh, disease and, and uh, death, right? It, it, it's, a, it's like one of my favorite quotes in the movie because it makes so much sense, right? And so we see this happening with British forces, right? There's not even fighting going on, or even yeah. when there is fighting going on, you still have your force being attracted by disease, like cholera and things. Cholera is a very common camp disease as well. Yeah, we're um, um we're we're very lucky that we don't have to deal with something like this. Today. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, uh, you know, don't get me wrong. Um, you know, Marines, we love to, you know, make fun of Navy medicine and shit like that. Oh, you know, change your socks, go drink some water, and you'll you'll be all good. You know, but but uh, things really really have made some serious advancements in the past oh, yeah. you know, century, century and a half, you know, I mean, up, up until then, 
um, it's it's rare to find a war in which more people were killed in combat than were killed by uh, diseases, starvation, things like that. Oftentimes, you had people killed by diseases and starvation more by orders of magnitude than mm -hmm. were killed in combat, right? And they, we're seeing the same thing here, which is, again, completely, uh, it's par for the course, right? This is not yes. out of the ordinary, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're definitely, you're definitely right about that. I mean, there are whole wars that were decided because one one force was so attracted by disease that they couldn't fight anymore, even though yeah. they may have had, you know, uh, overmatch against the uh, uh, their adversaries. Um, so the Brit the British suffered some major issues. Uh, they hadn't fought a peer uh, force against a peer force since Napoleon. So their their officer corps uh, was a uh, lackluster at best. Uh, officers could purchase promotions. Um, this is a big thing we see becoming prevalent. Um, this largely, most uh, prior to World War One, most nations kind of realized they had to get away with this because they're fighting these smaller scale wars and they're realizing yeah. like these guys are idiots. They have no clue how to you know leadership is abysmal. Um, so they're purchasing promotions, and this often means that a higher rank is really just a symbol of social status. And while that may have worked in like prior wars and stuff, because you know you would. I think battlefield experience is a huge thing, right? So we see a, a good, just kind of going off uh, topic just a little bit. Um, in the War of the Austrian Succession, I believe, um, Marshal, Marshal Sachs, he was the, uh, at the Battle of um, Fontenoy, I believe it was. He, he's, he's well known for his battlefield prowess. He was just some, he was like the son of, the, actually maybe the, maybe the bastard of a, a well-known noble. Um, but the thing was, is there's a period, right, where you, you had like, um, even, even in ancient Rome, where like the high society also had battlefield prowess as well because they were raised and taught in these things. And so you get into the 1800s um, and you start to see, that, like they start to lose this, right? If I can purchase my promotion, I may have no experience, may have never studied battle, but I may, you know, I may be commanded of a brigade or a battalion, right? Which yeah. will have serious implications for the battlefield. Um, in, in a lot of these societies, um, you know, being a, a commissioned military officer, I mean, it, it really did mean something. I mean, it, that yeah. alone was a symbol of social status. You know, I mean, today in uh, in Western societies or at least in the U.S., I guess I'll just speak for our country. You know, hey, you know, if somebody comes across you and you're like a colonel, a general, like, hey, that's pretty cool. But yeah, exactly. I, it's nowhere near like it was, you know, and say like Germany or Great Britain. I mean, like you were somebody if you were a yeah. colonel, a, you know, whatever, commissioned officer of a decent rank, um, you know, whether you purchase that rank or not. And, you know, it's one thing to fight under an officer who bought his rank or had, you know, a, a daddy with some class or something like that when you're fighting a bunch of tribesmen with spears. It's something else when you're fighting a peer foe. I, yeah, exactly. I would not want to be led by some asshole that bought his commission. I know that much. Definitely not. Yeah. And I think this this also goes back to right what you just mentioned. We it, And if you guys listen to those of you listen to the A&E podcast regularly, you have listened to the our Israel Hamas, um, Hamas, Israel Hamas um, episode, our latest one with uh, the um, death chief of uh, uh, our death chief of uh, the Middle East. Uh, in Central Asia, Shep. Um, and I, I even mentioned in there, right, even in ancient Rome, we saw people like Crassus go out and try and fight the Parthians because he wanted to gain more prowess at home. And that's a common thing we see people do. They gain a military, they get a military commission, or they, like we see here, buy their rank to gain more prowess at home or be respected more. 
Um, sometimes yeah, I mean, going, going yeah. along those same lines, obviously you don't buy your rank in Israel, but I will say, I mean, just looking at Israel's prime ministers, right? I mean, yeah. most, the vast majority of these guys, maybe except for Golda, Golda Meir, because, you know, she's a woman. Um, yeah. Most of these guys are like special forces commanders, you know, like yeah, these yeah. are experienced guys. These are like battle tested. Um, and especially when you have a society such as Israel, where, I mean, you're basically constantly at war with most of your neighbors, um, you know, military rank and, and experience really mean something. Exactly. Because exactly. Because war is so much of their lives. Same thing could say for the Roman empire, right? <laughs> uh, not to be the show for Roman empire all the time, but, uh, but war is, if war is so much a part of your life at all the time, the only, the most well-known people are generally going to be military commanders. And yeah. it's even more so if they're winning these battles. Um, getting back to Crimea, uh, the Crimean War, though. Uh, so uh, in September of 1854, uh, with the Battle of Armour, um, the British made a frontal assault on the Russian positions. Uh, well, French Algerian Suaves, they were known. Uh, if I believe correctly, these are the, the Suaves were the troops with the big baggy red pants. Um, yeah, and they had the, uh, the red hats. Yeah, and, and the red hats. Uh, those called kepis. I don't know kepis. what they were called. I could be wrong. Yeah, yeah, but um, we we, we saw troops fight who with similar uh, uniforms fighting a uh, civil war actually. Um, yeah. So really... so interestingly enough, the Confederacy and the U.S. Army both after this war, well, you know, ten years after or whatever, um, huh. basically created. I think zouaves. I think that's how they pronounce. They created yeah, zouave yeah. units. Um to like mimic these french units because they're like yeah, oh, no. these guys are so badass in the crimean war <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah they had the uniforms and everything yeah well and interestingly though at least on the union side i do believe they 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 did perform all right but then there's the battles where they kind of underperformed it like they're very well known for retreating and multiple times and routing um but that's a whole other who knows maybe that's a civil war podcast in the future um oh, why not? to be insane but uh <laughs> so um um, yeah, so, so, uh, the French Algerian, uh, troops, uh, they flanked, uh, the Russians, uh, at the Battle of Armour. Uh, the British didn't look too great in the assault, uh, especially after the Russians detonated a village along their path that was previously, previously filled with explosives, so likely like some type of depot. Um, that caused the British line to split. Um, however, they did have superior weapons. Rifles were longer range compared to the Russian muskets that were able to pick off Russian artillery. Um, and if you're and listening, Suave, if you're listening to this and you're currently in the service, pay attention to your immediate action drills, right? Because the <laughs> Russians were able to cause disarray in the British ranks because they blew up this village that came across their path, right? Obviously, that's going to startle startle you a little bit, but you need to keep your discipline. Pay attention to your immediate action drills because the Russians they had this plan to get the British lines in disarray, and it worked. It worked perfectly. Yeah, and, they just weren't counting was- on the French to outflank them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I know, right? And and that speaks to the uh the lack of discipline and and the the leadership, the quality of leadership, right? That we just mentioned before. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, the guy who bought his rank is far less likely to you know keep his composure in a in a situation like this than someone who's who's kind of been there, done that, who, yeah, who that. understands battle for the fog of war and things like that. Not only that, but most of these assholes weren't even anywhere near the front line, right? So chances are. This British unit that came across this village that then got detonated, they probably didn't even have their battlefield leader, battlefield, exactly. quote unquote, leader with them, mm-hmm. right? This guy was probably God knows how far from the front line. So here these troops are expected to act, um, expected to keep their discipline when faced mm-hmm. with this 
situation that completely catches them by surprise and their their leader is nowhere to be found yeah we, yeah exactly which i think doesn't help at all we we it's after this conflict where we actually generally tend to see um uh kind of high level officers kind of more involved in in uh warfare but in a different way less so uh where you kind of see the aspect of mission command right we see the germans develop this or what they call obstruct tactique which is just mission command. It's kind of where the United States' mission commander, independence of, of command comes from. Um, but but yeah, I think leadership did play a big part in that. Um, so. The, so the French were still able to flank the Russians by the taking the surrounding hills um, in, in light of the British line splitting um, and the lack of cohesion in British ranks. Um, this caused the Russians to treat to Sevastopol. So this is kind of leading up to the siege of Sevastopol. The British could have pursued the Russians to threaten Sevastopol by taking out uh, the force, um, but by taking said force out of commission. Uh, but the British commander, Lord uh, Raglan, he, he insisted on speed and, and uh, that the casualty toll uh, caused logistic issues. Uh, which it probably did, right? I think he made a good point. And we saw similar things where, where the speed uh, in, now luckily the French never capitalized, or tried to, but failed to capitalize off this in the Second World War, right? We saw the speed of the, the armament thrust of Germany really, really threatened the logistic supply chains. Um, and people like our Rommel and Darren were very, very, very worried about that they could get, the French would be able to easily cut them off because their supply chains were very, um, very uh, kind of strung out. Uh, the French obviously, we now know that the French were unable to uh, really kind of mass well and 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 uh, cut off these uh, change uh, supply chains. So after arm with the British and French, they wanted to lay siege on Sebastopol. Uh, so they set up shop at uh, Balaclava to isolate Sebastopol from the east, while their navies isolated it from the west. Um, the Russian admiral, um, the Russian admiral uh, Menshikov, he sank the Black Sea fleet to provide an obstacle to the hostile neighbors. Navy vessels so that they could not get in cannon range of the city. Um, after this, Menshikov decided to uh, go on the offensive against Balaclava on October 25th. They were able to capture some British force in the area uh, and flinch supply lands for the siege force. It was roughly 10 miles from Sevastopol. Um, Balaclava is where we see the charge for the Light Brigade. That's a very famous, uh, there's a very famous painting. There's songs about it. Um, uh, many of you, have, you guys have obviously read the poem. Um, so uh, this didn't win or lose the battle for the British, but it did some show, show some issues with their command. It's well known, obviously, charging up these guys against Russian defense, the famous Russian defense in depth, right? <laughs> um, but no, but, but about charging, you know, it was essentially a suicide mission. There really wasn't a need to expend those forces like they did. Um, obviously, um, it uh, it made for good songs, poems, and and stories, but uh, it uh, it was kind of useless. Um, so the the so charge was not supposed to happen the way it did. Lord Raglan, who was again in command of the British forces at this time, he wrote a very vague order for the cavalry to seize a specific set of Russian artillery guns. The messenger who relayed this order to the Light Brigade had his own interpretation of those orders, and the brigade's commander, Lord Cardigan, did not question that uh, bad messenger's interpretations. Right. So communication, obviously, I'm not going to harp on this uh, 
too much, but obviously communication is vital for military operations, especially when you're communicating between units. Um, I don't think I need to say anything else, you know, other than that. But, you know, the importance of communication cannot be overstated. Clear, clear communication. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Just to interject, I, I do think, uh, I mean, maybe even we'll, we'll end up doing like a technology advancement episode before the war or even doing it um, because the, you did, the point you just mentioned was a big thing. The, the, the idea, right, let's start with the invention of the radio, even a wired radio, right? The idea that I, at a command post, can tell a unit on the front line directly exactly what to do word for word without there being, like you just mentioned, some type of interpretation. There's no there's no really middleman to interpret, right? You're getting it word for word. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, there were mix-ups, plenty of them, um, in the First World War, but not because... So, sometimes yeah because someone's misinterpreting it but it's they're generally not getting a different message whereas this is what happened here um yeah which is definitely a, a big uh i mean we, i don't think that's something we really in modern day warfare that we thankfully uh our forces don't necessarily have to experience all that much um you can misinterpret what someone's telling you but you're not literally hearing a different message i think that's a big thing to mention yeah definitely the roughly 670 men of the light brigade, they rode into a valley towards the wrong set of guns that they were ordered to seize. And in the process, they exposed themselves to guns on the front, which they were charging towards. They also exposed themselves to guns to their left and their right. Um, so definitely not a situation you want to be in. They returned after 20 minutes of battle. And at this point, 40% of the unit was either killed, wounded, captured, or missing. The Russians actually came to fear the British cavalry after this because they thought they were all lunatics for <laughs> charging uh, this position. The reporting of William Howard Russell, who was this uh, well-known reporter on the front lines at the time, um, he worked for the Times of London, and he reported on the British forces throughout the war, and his reporting really influenced public opinion, uh, as did casualty reports at the time. And the British came to have admiration for the cavalrymen, but they also came to detest the aristocratic officer class. Um, and what they saw happen with the light brigade, you know, played a large role in that. Now, there was no real anti-war movement per se, but seeing the issues with the officer class, as well as camp conditions, which we kind of touched on a little bit, and the lack of proper care for casualties, really spurred public debate back home. In early November 1854, Menchikov tried one last time to break the British supply lines from Balakava to the siege force right outside of Sevastopol. 40,000 Russians attacked 16,000 British troops at Increment, nicknamed the Soldier's Battle, as it was led pretty much by captains and majors due to the heavy fog. Again, we talked about how some of these senior leaders were nowhere to be found, uh, you know, well far away at the front lines. The British were able to hold out with their superiority and small arms, which we kind of touched on a little bit, and the arrival of a French force. After his defeat, Menshikov would not fight the British and the French on the field again. The British and the French were able to lay their siege to Sevastopol after Inkerman. The British did not have a great time during the siege. Logistics was a major issue. Logistics wins wars. I'm not going to touch on that too much. I don't think I have to say anything else on that. Logistics wins wars. That's that's it. Um, there was a lack of food, wood, and charcoal to use for fires, adequate tents to shelter from the rain, and winter uniforms, most importantly. 
The French issued winter coats to their troops. The British, on the other hand, still had summer coats in the brutal winter. At this time, the British were becoming less supportive of the war, and I mean the British public. A lack of major battles meant that many journalists on uh, are embedded with the British force, I should say, turned their attention towards military scandals, right? You got to report on something. If you're not reporting on battles, well, what are you going to report on? What's going on in the army? Reporting yeah. on men freezing to death, uh, rations that were left at docks to rot for, you know, multiple reasons, right? They're not just one thing. Um, and other issues led to protests at home. And again, there was no real anti-war movement. But at the same time, people were not really happy about what's going on. Civilians began to help the war effort because they didn't like what was going on. Women began to knit winter headgear for soldiers. Rail workers were actually brought into Crimea to build the Grand Crimean Central Railway to move supplies from Balaclava to these siege positions around Sevastopol. And companies laid down telegraph wires to enable quick communication, which I bet they wish they had during the charge of the Light Brigade, but better late than never, I guess. However, things were, were not really going great for the Russians either. Russia's economy was not doing too hot due to the blockade in the Baltic Sea, which we touched on. Also, the agricultural sector was suffering as well due to the lack of men and livestock. So a lot of horses particularly were being used for the war effort. Now, as far as men goes, Russia still had serfdom at this point. There was a lot of serfs and any serf, which is, uh, I don't know, slave adjacent, I guess you could yeah. say. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good, that's a good way to yeah. describe it. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's probably the uh, the simplest way to put it. Not exactly like a slave, but you're you're pretty close. You're basically a slave. Yeah. yeah. Um. So any serf, actually, at this point in the war, that volunteered to serve in the Russian military would be freed from serfdom, right? So you got to imagine that motivated a fair amount of people to volunteer for the force, and it did. Led to an overwhelming amount of men trying to enlist, which was actually more than the army could handle, and that actually led to some civil unrest. Um, due to the army not being able to handle this large number of would-be volunteers. And interestingly enough, um, some of the unrest had to be put down by the army, the same army that these guys were trying to join. Um, additionally, the second assault on Malakov by the French, there was a first assault, didn't go well. You have a second assault later on. That led to the Russians retreating from Sevastopol on September 9th, 1855. So now the siege is over, right? Russians are gone. City belongs to the French and the British. Around this time as well, Lord Palmerston, uh, Paul, I can't say this, Paul, Palmerston. Yeah. <laughs> Christ, dude. Lord Palmerston. He comes to power as a prime minister after Lord Stanley lost a vote of no confidence, due in part uh, to what the British public was seeing with the war effort. Palmerston wanted to expand the war. I kind of mentioned that a little bit. Again, the great game is going on. You got to keep that. Keep that at the back of your mind, right? Everything is going on in the context of the great game, even though we're not in Asia at this point. France, however, they did not uh, want to expand the war, right? They had sent many more troops to the Black Sea area than the British did, and they had taken many more casualties as well. And they wanted to end the war. Um, I mean, they had the upper hand, right? They could end the war on their terms. So why not? And Austria was in the same boat, right? Austria kind of kind of joined the war later on didn't i i don't believe they did fighting uh you know if yeah, they did it, it wasn't a hell of a lot but they did you know threaten the russians with a sizable force so you know they mm. kind of had a say in it right if you're on the if you're on the side the winning side 
The Treaty of Paris was signed in March 1856. Russia had to give back all the territory that they seized from the Ottomans, right? So mostly you're talking about along the uh, Danube River. Russia was given back all of occupied Crimea, and Wallachia and Moldovia remained officially under the Ottoman Empire, but were basically independent. Again, the Ottoman Empire, I think you were saying the sick man of Europe at this point. I mean, they are a yeah. dying empire. Um, and that trend continued into the First World War, and we'll talk about that uh, next episode, I think, is when we're going to do the Ottoman Empire. Um, the yeah. Ottomans joined the Concert of Europe, actually, as a result of this tree, and the Black Sea was demilitarized for a few decades. Didn't last super long, but uh, yeah, that's pretty much where we are with the Crimean War. The war was an exercise in the conduct of modern warfare. You had trenches, railways, sea mines, and rifles. Uh, these were all emerging technologies and tactics that played decisive roles in the war and would in future conflicts as well. While most players in the war reformed their militaries as a result, Great Britain did not. British aristocrats cast any criticism of the military as unpatriotic. And the next year, in 1857, there was an uprising in India that took attention away from the Crimean War that we will now get into. Looking at India, so the Portuguese were the first European power to establish influence in India. This is 1500s-ish. And they set up, you know, trading posts in many of India's ports. The British, French, and Dutch, they start to see the riches that Portugal is bringing back home with them from India, and they want to get in on the action, right? They set up companies to do just that in the 1600s. By the time the 1700s rolls around, those countries controlled the coast and the Indian Ocean as the indigenous powers in India, the Mughal Empire, and other powers as well, were weak and they had no navies. The weak indigenous powers were right to be conquered, so the European powers set out to do just that. You have the Seven Years' War from 1856 to 1863. You may have heard of that. That played a decent role in our history before the revolution, but the war did go on in many places, uh, Europe and India, as well as North America. Yeah. George Washington fought in that war, if I believe correctly. Actually. He did. I think he was yeah, for a the British Empire. major, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he was. Yeah, well, yeah. You, had, um, you had a lot of um, American militiamen that were folded yeah. into the, the British military uh, at this point to fight in the Seven Years' War. In North America, that is. So the Seven Years' War allowed the British East India Company to push the French out of India and slowly come to dominate the entire subcontinent. Uh, so interestingly enough, you have the British East India Company in charge. I talked about how they set up companies to, you know, kind of extract some of these riches from India and make their money. Um, the British East India Company was that. So technically at this point, India was not under control of the British Crown or Parliament it was under control of the East India Company, which you may have heard from them, uh, may have heard of them from the Boston Tea Party that may ring a bell. So British Parliament and the king advised the company that taking control of the area might not be the best idea, but the East India Company saw opportunity, right? And I'll refer to them as the EIC because I don't feel like saying the same name every time. The EIC controlled India at this point, this was known as company rule, and this went on until 1857. You may remember that I mentioned a revolt about a minute ago in India this year, right after the Crimean War. Here we go. Company rule was pretty hectic 
For the Indians, the EIC would take spices and silks from India. They also heavily taxed the people. Additionally, the company owned the agricultural land and shifted production away from food products to cash crops like cotton and tea. We talked about, uh, you know, in the last episode, how Britain was uh, buying tea from China. Uh, uh, most of their tea came from China. Well, you know, they kind of wanted to offset that, right? They don't want to rely exactly. on one source. So they're getting a little bit from India as well. Uh, not nearly as much as they were from China, but but a little bit. Yeah, so uh, so so the ESC, uh, or I like ESC is better, right? Control of India continued uh, as company rule until 1857. Um, uh that that goes to the revolt. Uh, I think you just mentioned that. Um, so one uh, major grievance that led to the rebellion, uh, the Sepoy uh, Rebellion, um, was uh, cartridges used for the new Enfield Pattern 1853 rifle musket, uh, rifled musket. Uh, so the cartridge had to be opened by mouth, and it was it was greased with either beef tallow or pig lard, which offended the Hindus. Those who know, those or for those who don't know, right? Uh, cows are, are sacred animals to so the Hindus. Um, uh, greased with either beef tallow or pig lard, which offended both. Both the um, Hindus and as well the Muslims, because obviously it's greased with uh, pork, um, pig lard. So this concern was brought up by the 19th Bengal Native in Infantry Regiment. They were confronted by their colonel, who bought an artillery to get them to stand down. So this just further, you know, degrades the situation and the unrest. Um, and, at, and at this point, Pakistan was not was not a thing, right? It was yeah. still part of India. So you have a lot more Muslims than you do in India today. Obviously, there's a ton in India. I don't well, yeah. want to give the impression that there isn't. That there's no but you Muslims. have even more yeah. Muslims at this point, right? So you're... And they were more inter and they're more intertwined with each other, the populace, right? Yeah, um, definitely. Um, So, you know, your cartridges, they either use a beef fat or pork fat. So you're, either way, you're pissing off the, the two uh, most practiced religions in India, which is a, a very populous country. And right. again, I, I think you just brought it up. Um, the East India Company at this point, they had a private army of of quarter million Indians, right? So you're potentially pissing off a lot of people. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so across northern India, right, right, these forces, uh, they rebelled. Um, they, they were met with extreme brutality from the uh, East India Company, uh, their forces that, that you just mentioned. And they were civilian, uh, civilian uh, you know, private Indians. Not private Indies, but uh, it was more so like a you could say similar to like a PMC, um, largely uh, subsidized, obviously by the crown. Um, the fighting and then uh, the resulting famine from the fighting and diseases killed roughly eight hundred thousand Indians, so this is just under a million. Roughly six thousand British military personnel and civilians were killed. Uh, while the EIC put down the rebellion, it was a little it was too chaotic for the Queen uh, Victoria, uh, and so the company was devolved in eighteen fifty eight. And India came under direct rule under the crown. So the, the great EIC is now dead, right? Um, and which kind of controlled foreign policy as well as not only just trade, but foreign policy as well for Great Britain is now dead. Um, there's arguments we made that this, their demise um, also contributed to the demise of British influence around the world as well. Um, um, it, it, it's not to say... <laughs> not to justify the brutality of, of how they operated for hundreds of years, but it's there's something to be said for putting your foot down to certain brutal acts that gen that generally got you places and uh, uh, enabled you to uh, keep your hegemony over a region, territory, or trade um, may have deterred them from being able to expand and may uh, have also um, 
let other nations kind of get in on this um, and kind of push them out of certain areas. But that that's we can get into that as well. Um, we'll obviously do a pre-war um, United States episode as well. Um, and so we can definitely get into that as well with, you know, kind of the switching of influence between the United States and Great Britain. Um, so, well, the, uh, yes, so under the crown rule, things were a little better for the Indians. So now that the ESC is gone, um, the Indian civil service was created and some principalities were partially recognized within India, although the crown still had to, uh, the, obviously the final say over their affairs. Participation in the civil service was limited to those that could pass an entrance exam into Lon in London. Um, so obviously now this kind of um, separates kind of like the, I don't want to say the chaff from the wheat, but, you know, if you're like a poor non-landowner, you're not going to be able to go to London to take this entrance exam, right? So obviously, you know, separating certain type of people um, from, uh, or what in India they would call lower caste members, right, um, from the, from the, the, the ones higher in the caste. Um, yeah, you know, um, this this is probably the only time in my life I will quote Tim Kennedy. So forgive me, but um, <laughs> and I doubt he's I doubt he's the first person to say this. Uh, but he said, you know, you you send your son to Rome, he's gonna come back as Caesar. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly how that goes. He's gonna come back, and he's not gonna be he's not gonna be uh Indian, and he's gonna be more British. Um. Yeah. You know, we say with that, what, what's the famous general Germanicus, right? He was a, a uh, his father was a Germanic uh, uh, tribe leader, right? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, they sent him to Rome. He got full on Romanized. He came back. Um, and the argument, there's also an argument to me. The only reason he uh, kind of pulled what he did was because of, he kind of got, he kind of got passed over for some promotions, stuff like that, obviously because he was Germanic, right? Um and so it's hard to me that he wasn't doing it because, he, you know, something got some like patriotic seal. It, just, it was because he didn't he wasn't able to be more Roman, you know. So. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, that's a big thing. And um, we see empires have consistently throughout all history kind of utilize this to kind of put, uh, like we mentioned before, to, quote unquote, civilize the population by bringing higher, higher member, uh, members of higher society kind of under the wing, teaching them their ways, their values. Um, we said, like you mentioned, the Americans did this with the with the Native American population. Um, so um, the obvious difference between life in England and life in India and the hypocrisy of the empire kind of led to the creation of the Indian National Congress in 1885. Um, so now we're getting into uh, so now we'll get into Southern Africa, mainly the obviously the Boer Wars. Um, so the Boers were the descendants of the Dutch colonists that came to South Africa, um, aka the Afrikaners. Uh, I think one big thing we've seen the Dutch kind of pop up randomly. Uh, we saw them pop up in India. We saw them pop up before. Just a lot of people don't. This is kind of a quick side note. A lot of people don't understand the reach of the Dutch colonial empire, what it used to have. And so there's a lot of former Dutch this, former Dutch that. Um, um, uh, we, we saw the presence of the Dutch in, in New England as well. right? Um, yeah, New York it, used to be a Dutch city. Yeah, New, New York used to be Dutch. Um, and I'm losing the guy's name. I mean, we all learned this in school, too, and I can't remember his name. But... um. Uh, I, 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 it'll pop up as soon as we finish recording too. Um, but uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the the Dutch had a hand in a lot of things. The Dutch had such um, hegemony over certain areas. I mean, they fought they fought um, peer wars with uh with people like the Spanish, right? And they they would fight the Spanish to stand still in multiple wars. Um, and, and the Dutch even at one point held hegemony over, and this is this is hundreds of years prior to now, even had hegemony over um 
over England. There were a lot of Dutch kings. Um, actually, da- that's wrong. Don't quote me on that because it's Danish kings. <laughs> so, so I'm definitely wrong on that. <laughs> so redact, um, don't redact that from your minds, guys. But yeah, so that's just a quick sign of why you keep hearing the Dutch pop up because they had their hands in a lot of stuff. The Dutch can be, I think, the best thing to compare them to. They didn't necessarily have a, a strong, massive military or even navy, but it was, you can compare them to kind of the uh, the Venice, right? the, Ven- the Venetian Republic, I think is a good comparison. They kind of had a huge trade empire um and they generally you generally saw great britain or another nation kind of taking their side of an issue because of the, obviously the trade was so important um we kind of see venice with the, using this as well but they did have a very capable navy um so uh in 1806 uh britain uh kind of back in uh napoleonic era in 1806 britain beats napoleon's uh at napoleon at the battle of blauberg uh leading to the victors taking control of the dutch cape colony so problems arise between the British, excuse me, and the boars over language, culture, and legal systems. British outlawed slavery, which many boars relied on to work their farm to work their farms, and many boars left Cape Town, the Cape Town area, to eastern South Africa, out of British control, and they established the Orange Free State and South African Republic, or the Transvaal Republic. By the 1840s, Britain expands regional control and shares borders with the two Boer republics. So right, so, so now we're going to see the type, some type of conflict happen, right? It's kind of the first thing that happened. I think in a good example to keep it kind of in the fold of Great Britain was we saw this buffer state, uh, obviously Afghanistan between Great Britain and Russia, um, and uh, Britain only decided to physically and like kinetically get involved in Afghanistan once there was kind of this small region of land. And I, I don't know if it had a name that wasn't really owned by any nation, kind of in the eastern directly east to Afghanistan. And it was kind of like this gray zone. Um, as soon as you saw that gang get filled in by their Russian-controlled borders or, or, or um, India, um, British uh, Raj, right? Uh, that's obviously when it becomes, okay, we can now no longer pretend like we're not rivals in this area or you know, in this region, or we're not pining for this this region as well. Um, so uh, so, uh, so the British expands the regional control and shares borders with two Boer republics now. So the first Boer War, this is between 1880 and 1881, was a series of border clashes between the British Boers, I mean the Boers and the British. The British are forced to acknowledge the independence of the republics after a Boer victory. So there's a there's a lot of things that kind of went into play here. Obviously, the use of guerrilla tactics as well, but the Boers also had like a capable artillery force as well. I think that's, that's something that needs to be mentioned. Um, uh, kind of the use of um, not only firing them in direct lay as well, but also, you know, being able to bombard the British uh, multiple times, be able to surround them and bombard them. I think the Boer use of artillery is very reminiscent, arguably, of Napoleon's use of artillery. I'm, I'm not, I don't know if they studied Napoleonic tactics at, at all, but they de- they definitely leaned very heavily on their artillery forces, and they were pretty capable as well. Um, so, um, so the British are forced to acknowledge the independence of the republics after the Boer victory. And so between 1884 and 1886, gold deposits were discovered in South African Republic. This leads to mass migration of people from the British Empire, and uh, and uh, this earns the attention of the British elite. In comes uh, Cecil Rhodes. So he's a Cape Colony Prime Minister. Cecil Rhodes led an effort to bring the republics under British control to secure the natural resources. For those who don't know who Cecil Rhodes is, he's kind of seen as like a British Kissinger. Um, he's He was a huge, huge, huge proponent of British foreign policy at the time. Um, He's also known for doing kind of some bad things and things that didn't turn out well, like Kissinger. But he he is kind of 
was at the time the champion of British foreign policy. Um, and he, I, I, he goes on to do other things after this as well that he's, he's a little more well-known for. This is kind of where he made his, uh, made his mark his first as well. Um, yeah, and he has a country named after him. Yeah, Rhodesia, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that guy, I mean, well, there's so, you could obviously say Kissinger didn't make it as much as he did because uh, there's no, there's no Kissinger or whatever. <laughs> Kissinger. Thank <laughs> God. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so goals discovered, Sincere Rhodes, he's leading the effort to bring republics under British control to secure said resources, right? So Rhodes launched the uh, Jameson Raid in 1895 with 500 British South Africa. Uh, South African company policemen from Rhodesia into Transvaal. Uh, Tran- remember, Transvaal is the is independent republics that the Boers um, uh, founded. The raid was supposed to be uh, to trigger an uprising among the British immigrant population. It failed. So for the, la- the ne- next few years, British uh, they continued to amass forces along the border with the Boers. In 1899, the Boers decided to strike first, the preemptive strike, rather than wait for an invasion, sparking the Second Boer War. So the Boers relied on a militia system. Many of these people were farmers. Um, Boer governments mustered all the local governments, mustered all the able-bodied men between 16 and 60 during the time of war. Boer militiamen were expected to arrive with their own weapons and horses, although the government did buy and issue some Maori rifles. Now, I do think one thing that, I, and I've heard this said often, that they brought their own kit, but they, they were well-versed in the use of it as well, which made them ex- very effective fighters, I believe, at least yeah. at a small scale. When it came to like small unit, you know, engagements and things like that, I think that's a big thing. You know, yeah, well, they were they were very good marksmen. On, yeah, you know, yeah. When you, you and being, you know, you know, in those days when you thing. when you grow up on a farm, right, and you're doing hunting and stuff like that, I mean, it's it's common yeah. for you to be a for you. To be a, oh yeah, these guys were marksman. picking off British. You know, I mean, they were picking off British officers and stuff, which is um still even in this day kind of a not not today today, but in that day was still kind of a relatively new thing. The idea that I'm going to pick off your officer, right? They they were largely kept, you know. They there's this kind of like unspoken. Um, yeah, it was it was frowned upon you, to target yeah, frowned, officers. But like it, you know, generally like they would when they would die, it's like a stray cannonball or a stray bullet or something or an accident, like like in Stonewall Jackson's instance, right? But um, you generally didn't do that. The boys did not care. <laughs> so um, and then this largely. Uh, plays into like the less gaudiness of uniforms and things, right? The most gaudy, the most gaudy looking guy. Well, I'm gonna shoot him first, right? You know? So um, but yeah, so so uh the boys bought their own kit. Uh like we mentioned before, they also employed French and German artillery, the German artillery being uh kraut not kraut. <laughs> uh club it's k-r-u-p-p uh which is the, the famous club brand that became very synonymous with German artillery. Uh, <laughs> no, that that's that's the next war. Uh, <laughs> oh man, <laughs> I cannot believe I said that. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, the Boers brought about 60,000 fighters to the table. Uh, so they relied heavily on imports from Europe and feared uprising from the African population at the same time. The Boers, so they knew they had to win a quick victory. Uh, the British thought they could put the, down the Boers in weeks. It took about three and a half years and 22,000 dead of about the 450,000 soldiers that they ended up having to deploy. 
uh, to the to the conflict. The Boers took uh, about six hundred twenty thousand casualties. Uh, well, not all casualties; those were all deaths, um, and countless ca- numbers of casualties. The wars led to reform in the British army and gave many uh, officers their first taste of combat. I think the use of artillery and kind of its dynamic role, um, and then also the use of small unit tactics and things like that, was was a lot of lessons that the British learned. I think in the Boer Wars, um, it actually kind of dispelled this uh, the myth of you know it would maybe not may, may not have even been a myth, but it dispelled the idea right that I'm going to put some socialite in. <laughs> In command of, of any any number of forces, and they're going to be effective without either prior experience or training at all. Um, so th- so this kind of gets into alliances. Um, uh, it's kind of the last period of uh, uh, so as you can tell, uh, Britain and Russia did not care for each other for most of the nineteenth century. The Great Game did not officially end until nineteen oh seven, when both countries of France entered into a military alliance. We'll get into this kind of a uh, normalization of relations between uh, France, Great Britain, and uh, and then Russia in the Morocco conflict, we kind of see Germany make a miscalculation based off of the assumption that they hadn't necessarily done that. Um, yeah, so, you know, while while the great game didn't end until 1907, um, the 1880s, these countries did show that they could at least engage in some diplomacy with the goal of not going into direct conflict with each other again. You had the Pamir Boundary Commission between 1884 and 1886, and this sets boundaries and established Afghanistan as a recognized buffer state between the empires. Around this time, they entered into an alliance in 18, I'm sorry, 1907. Uh, you had the three Anglo-Russian agreements regarding Central Asia. Those were signed and they put an end to the rivalry, officially the great game. So it's interesting with, with the lead up to the First World War, you see uh, Britain making these alliances with people that have historically been their adversaries, right? You know, you're talking about Russia in the 1800s France. for most of the 1800s and France for like basically all of history, yeah, right? Literally. You know, up, up until, up until, uh, you know, probably they, they mid, were fighting mid France 1800s. before France was France even to be honest. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, no kidding. So looking at Great Britain and France, again, these were two historical enemies. They fought many wars against each other. They form an alliance in 1900. It should be noted that the two, as we have talked about, they fought together in the Second Opium War when France uh, was under Napoleon III and in the Crimean War when, you know, France is also under Napoleon III at that same time. Now, moving on, you have the convention with the Russian Empire in 1903. This will affect the early stages of the Moroccan crisis. Moroccan crises, actually, there was two of them. In 1904, yeah. Morocco was independent of the great powers, yet it sat in a strategic location. Great powers saw the opportunities to enhance their naval supremacy should they control Morocco. Looking at the first crisis in March of 1905, Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany visited uh, Tangier, 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 yeah. Tangier, Morocco and met with officials who represented Sultan Abdelaziz of Morocco. He voiced his support for a free and independent Morocco. France, on the other hand, had been increasing their control over Morocco, and this statement brought uh, French activities in Morocco into the limelight. The Kaiser called for an international conference to rein in French influence in the area. The French saw no need for such a conference, and the tensions between the two great powers increased. You have the Algeciras Conference in Algeciras, Spain, that lasted from January to April of 1906. 
France was looking to make Morocco a protectorate while Germany was looking to show its influence on the world stage for the first time. They wanted to keep Morocco independent. Spain, Britain, and Russia supported the French designs, and the conference ended with a French victory. European bankers were appeased. Europe can now, Europeans can now own land. Uh, French and Spanish officers now instructed the Moroccan police force. Germany now knew the relationship between Great Britain and France, but domestically, the pro-war party gained a greater following, as many saw the outcome as a slight to Germany at the time. Sorry, just a quick interjection here. So I mentioned before how um, Germany kind of miscalculated. So going deeper into the Algeciris uh, um, conference. So Germany kind of went to this conference thinking that either Russia would be non-aligned, like wouldn't do anything, not say much, or Russia would either support their claims. Obviously, harping back to the Crimean War, like think they're in their mind, there's no shot that they're gonna that they're gonna support them, right? Um, yeah. obviously when they did that kind of put Germany in the back foot. And so when it turned out, um, when the conference ended, obviously in favor of, Fr of France, like I mentioned, the pro-war party essentially kind of gave more traction this idea that. But remember, they're coming off the hype of clapping every single adversary in a conflict for essentially the whole. I mean, they've since Napoleon, since they were Prussia, right? They've been they've been they've been winning uh, wars and battles. So they're these guys are really on like this big like I'm I'm him hype, right? If you could call it that. <laughs> um, so uh, this kind of now I think the big thing for them is they hadn't really fought this against a peer, not a peer force, but a peer power, right? You know, they they beat the uh, beat Denmark, they beat Austria at like their all time low though, right? Um, they beat uh, obviously Napoleon, obviously in a coalition of multiple nations, um, and so now, but so I guess they assumed that they would be taken seriously on the world stage, um, but they 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 weren't necessarily, and so th this initial Moroccan crisis was them trying to take advantage of their obviously their newfound power, their newfound strength and influence, and, and they they kind of overstepped, um, and so they kind of got like this this kind of wake up call like oh. Like no one really takes us seriously. And this kind of leads to, I believe we've mentioned this as well, alludes to, I mean, we mentioned this in the pre-war uh, Germany episode as well, right? That Germany felt that no one was taking them seriously. Even deeper, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II himself personally thought that he was teased a lot. I mean, he was obviously teased a lot growing up and things like that. Um, he personally didn't think that when he went on, you know, diplomatic visits and things, he, he seemed like every time he was getting slighted and things like this. Um, he wasn't very, taken very seriously. So this kind of leads to Germany wanting to kind of make a name for itself, which could obviously uh, would lead to some of the, the actions later on. Um, if you want to get, so this, there was a second Moroccan crisis as well. This one was uh, more heated than the first one. The first one was largely dealt with through diplomatic means. Um, there were, so a rebellion broke out of Morocco against Sultan um, uh, Al Hafid of Morocco. He is the, if I'm correct, the brother of Al uh, Al Abdulaziz. Um, yeah, I think it's important to mention also that uh, Abdulaziz uh, was uh, very, very young at the time, and it was actually his vizier who was kind of doing everything. His vizier who was kind of doing everything, which is a common thing in Sultanates that we see. Same thing in the uh, Ottoman Empire as well. When you when you kind of have a young a young emperor or young whatever. Um, this is we see this in all history, right? You, there's somebody behind, not necessarily behind the scenes, but kind of like a, a what many people will call a regent, who's actually yeah. you know like controlling things um, until they come of age. Um, now there was a whole background issue going on in Morocco at the time as well, though. Um, they not necessarily civil war, but there was he essentially overthrew his brother. His brother ended up coming back. You know, there's kind of this big back and forth. 
um, as this as the situation is going on. Uh, he actually ended up um, Abdulaziz was actually um, banished, and then he ended up coming back. Uh, so the Brian broke out of Malta, uh, Malta, Morocco against Sultan Al uh in nineteen eleven. Uh, the the famous year that the uh, pistol I just had to mention that was made. Um, the <laughs> the Browning. Uh, and French pressured him to request French uh, the military assistance. Um, so when he acquiesced, the French began mobilization. So, you know, the, the tried and true tactic of saying, hey, you need my help, right? You know, as I essentially have a gun to your head. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, and it, it's, you know, we, every, every nation has done this in the past. Um, so, uh, so a small unit was dispatched. Um, I believe they were called, um, I forget the term, but the, there's a term for this kind of like small unit being dispatched like to enhance guerrilla tactics and other things as well that the, that the French dispatched to um, the country. The Spanish now dispatched units to uh, urban hubs due to fears that the that France might actually annex Morocco. Right? They knew they had these designs before, and so while this while Spain may have backed up their claims before, they really only wanted limited French um, limited French involvement in the country. Right? As long as everyone was kept happy, they were fine. Um, so now here we see the Germans kind of entered back in the picture. So the Germans sent the gunboat uh, SMS Panther to the port city of Agadir uh, to protect, quote unquote, German trade interests. You know, once again, a tried and true uh, uh, rhetoric that we see everybody employ. And the SMS, uh, a bigger, this is a cruiser now, uh, came later to replace the gunboat. Um, so now due to a major financial crisis at home, the Germans weren't able to have to double down on these actions. Um, their gold standard had kind of fell out. Um, there was... Uh, you know, unemployment and unrest, and obviously there was protests going on at the time. So they did have to back down now from the, uh, from from obviously this, this diplomatic, the diplomatic tensions in the region. So as a result of diplomatic meetings, the British signaled that they would not let Germany impose their will on the French, um, which, which indicates the, the extremely close ties that you just mentioned before between the two historic enemies, uh, Great Britain and France. Um, and so they, they, uh, because of the unrest, obviously Germany uh, let France deal with Morocco as they saw fit. And in return, France allowed Germany control over territories uh, in what was the French Middle Congo at the time called, and I'm going to butcher this name, uh, New Cameroon, which is part of, I believe, New Camer, which is what was a German colony at the time. Um, I mean, a French colony. That, yeah, uh, it's actually Cameroon, I believe. There's a typo. Yeah, so one interesting thing to note about all this is, you know, Britain is choosing France over Germany. But interestingly enough, George V, the king of England at the time, he's first cousins with Philip II. Yeah, I know. Like, yeah, exactly. Because when and I this mentioned this is three before, years before the First World War. Yeah, and when I mentioned before, like he used to get bullied. Uh, Wilhelm, Wilhelm used to get bullied as a kid. You got bullied by George V. <laughs> right, so that doesn't help when you're sitting here like do i declare war on these guys it's like well i hate the guy anyway right um i also believe nicholas uh czar nicholas was their cousin right he was yeah all three exactly of them were first cousins yeah so queen victoria is, is all these people are like her spawns essentially right there's a famous picture where like all the leaders of of, of the europe and the, some other and i believe there's some ottoman um not royalty but some ottoman you know decision makers who were also part of it i'm not sure how that worked out but um, she, I mean, she really had like this iron fist. Well, you could say over um, Europe's political landscape at the time. But there's a famous picture of them all in one picture, and it yeah. really doesn't. It really puts the idea to you know, 
you know, kind of on paper or in your mind plainly, like how much, how interconnected these families all were, um, which I always think is insane. And I remember when I first heard about it, I didn't, I was like, there's no way they're all related to each other, but they literally were. Um, so, but um, I think this kind of gets into the, like, right, the, um, now that we're at kind of the end of the, near the end of the episode, um, the war aims of Great Britain, um, what they were looking for uh, in a potential conflict with Germany, um so uh, obviously the, the the just the public justification for the war was the German invasion of Belgium right this is where we see these alliances play out a lot um uh Germany sought to conquer Belgium in order to control the British Channel right that's a big huge trade hub not trade hub but uh thoroughfare um Belgian independence and the destruction of the German high seas fleet were two main goals for Britain we saw them try to do this in the Battle of Jutland we'll obviously get into the Battle of Jutland in more detail later, they obviously um, did not uh, succeed in that. Obviously, both nations touted the Battle of Jutland as a win. Um, I don't think anyone won that battle. It was, it's, I think that was the, it's one of, see, because it's probably the most famous naval engagement of the war. But I think out of naval engagements, if, if I could like coolly rate them, it would definitely be like a one out of 10. You know, just <laughs> absolutely abysmal on both sides, just how they operated. Um, that's a quick tangent. But uh, so the country, uh, they entered the war with no territorial ambitions in Europe. Um, so this is, they mainly entered the war, right, because of their um, treaty obligations and things like that. Um, they yeah, wanted to maintain the balance of power on the mainland. Uh, that was kind of the main driver for them, maintain that balance of power. Because obviously the current balance of power was very beneficial to Great Britain at the time. Yeah, and I, I will say Britain uh, was was looking at Germany's colonies in Africa, you know, kind of yeah, yeah, their like, lips yeah. a little bit. Um, and the, yeah. the Ottoman Empire, they they don't join the war from the outset as the as the other countries do. They join a little bit mm -hmm. later on, but but once the Ottoman Empire does join, spoiler alert, on the side of Germany and Austria, uh, Britain's looking at that too. Yeah, exactly. Britain, so Britain, you know, they stood they stood to gain a lot. Um, the reason for Ottoman Empire not joining, but we'll also get into this in the next episode, was obviously the Balkan Wars, which is a huge, huge, huge thing when it comes to decline. That's kind of like if you could say, the, I mean, other than if the First World War was the nail in the coffin, it was kind of like the, uh, you, know, you know, that like first tap, you put the nail in to kind of get it in there. That right. was the Balkan Wars. That kind of, you know, by the end of the Balkan Wars, it was kind of, well, they, due to infighting and things like that, Obviously, they were able to capitalize off of some of them and gain back some of the losses they, uh, they uh, lost in the Balkan states. But they their manpower was largely sapped. Their uh, their um, kind of war party was kind of thought as being you know disingenuous now. Um, so they were reticent to go to war, but they thought they would be able to make gain back some things if they obviously joined in the side of. Uh, the um, Axis powers, because obviously, who did they just finish fighting? Serbia, and Serbia was on the uh, part of the, well, not part of the Triple Entente, but they were on the Allies, side of the Allies. Um, I think that's a good place to end. Um, I think we covered a good amount of, uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff we missed, right? We missed some things, other things, Bosnian crisis being one of them, but um, I think that's a good a good overall rundown of pre-war Great Britain. Uh, this is, uh, next we'll be doing the Ottoman Empire, pre-war Ottoman Empire, as we mentioned a couple of times in the recording. Um, that's going to be a pretty good one as well, guys. Uh, definitely, definitely look forward to recording that one as well. 
um, there's a lot to a lot of implications that you know for the Middle East now that we see um, in the yeah. decline of the Ottoman Empire, what happened pre World War One and with the Ottoman Empire and how they dealt with the Ottoman Empire after and what kind of how they divvied it up afterwards. Um, so that's going to be a big thing. And you know, we'll, we'll obviously draw the parallels between now and today, now and then as well. Um, but yeah. I think that's pretty much uh, all we got for you guys. So thanks for listening to this. We'll have to get together soon and do the Ottoman Empire. I would not be surprised if that is uh, another multiple part as well. So I imagine that's. Cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it probably will be. And yeah. it'll be, it might even be next year. <laughs> <laughs> I had to do it, man. I had to do it. Yeah, somebody had to. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it was great recording. I, I hope you guys liked the episode and look forward to the next one. Yeah, we'll see you guys soon. Okay, I want to thank you guys for listening to that episode. Me and John both hope that you guys really enjoyed it. And again, we are going to look at the Ottoman Empire next. Uh, so hopefully we could get that out to you guys here pretty quick. Of course, thank you for supporting this podcast. All the support you guys gives us means a lot to me. You could find this podcast on your favorite apps. That includes Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, we're there. You could find us on Twitter and Instagram at analyze educate that is all one word we are also on telegram same name please consider supporting us again patreon ko-fi or substack you can find all those links in the show notes below also be sure to leave us a five-star rating on the app used to listen to this podcast that helps us out a lot as well that is all i have for you guys right now we'll see you soon